now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Thanks for joining us on this Monday, December 4th, 2023. Seven minutes past the hour, I'm Jared Servi, filling in for Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors are Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up on this hour of The Federal Drive, how one agency coordinates everything the U.S. and its allies know about the threats on the high seas. Also, a big breakthrough for beyond-line-of-sight communications in the U.S. military. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. First up, though, the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Health, or ARPA-H, is thinking hard about how it can leverage generative artificial intelligence. ARPA-H sees generative AI playing a role in its internal operations, as well as lending itself to multiple research projects. For more on how ARPA-H is approaching AI, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday moderated a recent discussion hosted by the Association for Federal Information Resources Management, featuring ARPA-H Deputy Director Susan Menares. Generative AI, it, it is something that we are fully embracing within our organization in two primary ways. The first is to get our house in order. As you can imagine, within an organization like ARPA-H, we are not only processing a large volumes of data and information just as part of our operational functioning. So you can think about this from everything from personnel to contracting to uh, leveraging information from our partner agencies to help shape our program activities. Um, so everything internal within our organization, and we're leveraging the power of generative AI to be able to learn from that, not just harness it as data, not just information, but translating that into knowledge to improve how we're recruiting, how we're retaining highly talented individuals, but also how we're positioning our programs to be unique and have the largest potential impact to optimize our resources. So that's internal. Externally, what we've fully recognized now, just been in operations for a year, working closely with partners from across the health ecosystem, is that there are zettabytes of data that are uh, related to the program areas that we want to launch. And one of the earliest observations is if we truly want to be unique and we truly want to optimize the, the resources that we've been provided to have this innovative approach across the entirety of the health ecosystem, we can't do it with, with a, an ignorant lens. We have to make sure that we are gaining knowledge from all of the activities that are currently ongoing across the health ecosystem and pulling that in in a meaningful way so that we are actually creating a unique niche, a unique opportunity for ARPA-H to really accelerate these very high-risk, high-reward programs and initiatives across the health ecosystem. Layered on top of that, as we are starting to launch our programs, those programs are generating data. So our performers that are out in the health ecosystem, they're they're creating data and knowledge from almost day one once they receive our funding and they start to launch these programs. And we want to be able to pull that data in as quickly as possible to figure out what's working, what's not working, where their opportunity is to modify those programs for the highest impact, and how can we share back within across the federal government our partners who would benefit from that information, but also back out into the ecosystem so that others who are working working in the research and development space can quickly learn from our advances. That's a fantastic overview of everything uh, ARPA-H is, is really looking at from, from a Gen AI perspective. Are there any uh, discrete problems or challenges, long-term uh, research challenges that, that you're looking at with 
gen AI type technologies at this point, or is it is it too early to say? It sounds like you're really looking to apply this across the organization, but are there any discrete healthcare moonshots, if you will, uh, that this could be potentially applied to? Yeah, we are definitely looking across the entirety of the healthcare ecosystem. We can sort of bin it into three different places that we're looking at advanced generative AI to help bring capabilities. The first is on the patient population. There's so much data related to patients, whether it's in an electronic health record, whether it's in a community health worker, you know, location, whether it's, you know, in, in their own personal health devices. This exists in so many different places, but it's not integrated in a way currently that allows us to gain greater insights uh, into uh, patient populations represented across this country. And then saying, how could we actually help improve those patient outcomes through improved access to high quality primary care? helped access to screening and diagnostics, help accessing monitoring for someone who has a, a chronic disease. Um, so we are looking in that particular space. We don't have any programs yet, but it is something that we're super excited about. We're also looking uh, at the provider side. So as providers are integrating digital health technology is that maybe leverage AI and, and possibly generative AI to help support their decision workflows, their uh, patient care, their billing activities and sort of on the administrative services side. Can we do something to have AI assurance where, you know, if a digital health technology has been deployed in a clinical care workflow and it is leveraging all this information and it's using a generative approach to be able to help inform a provider and provider services, we have to make sure that we have the reliability of those tools so that a provider can take them and not have to question some of the information that may be generated through this device where they, they are, it's leading to them uncertainty, whether or not a patient would benefit from X, Y, or Z sort of a, a protocol. Um, so we are thinking about that space, AI assurance, AI security, but also, well, how can we accelerate digital health technology is using a generative AI approach uh, to help on the provider services side. And then the last is um, thinking about on the, on the payer side. So, you know, we know that administrative uh, services side, the payers actually, you know, taking uh, patient care and, and moving it into, you know, the, the administrative the billing side, all of those activities is incredibly time consuming. It is potentially up to 30% of healthcare costs is really bound up in that administrative services side of the healthcare ecosystem. Is there something that we could do to help accelerate, to help to reduce the overall costs associated with the payer side uh, so that we can redirect more of the, the resources that are funneling off into that administration side back into patient care, into provider training, into expansion of provider services. And so, you know, looking across that triumvirate of patients, payers, and providers, and, and thinking about holistically, how can we actually use generative AI uh, to contribute that? Again, no programs launched yet. So this is a little teaser, but we are thinking very much about uh, how, how we could help contribute to that space. What do you think some of the risks are and how is ARPA-H kind of taking a risk framework specific to some of these healthcare challenges that you are looking to address with yeah. generative AI? Yeah, I think there's two ways that we're primarily thinking about risk. The first is risk to patient health and safety. So if we are enabling a digital health technology to be integrated into a clinical care workflow, if that technology is not sufficiently trained 
or that we don't have sufficient assurances in place that when a, the training data set deviates from the patient population that it's it's currently helping to support, there's a real risk that any of the information that a digital health technology or an enabling service will actually cause more harm than potentially good. And so that is a huge risk. And so thinking about, is there a systematic way to include AI assurance as sort of an overlay of any of these technologies rather than a bespoke one-off uh, approach so that every technology has its own assurance? Is there something more systematic that we can do that would reduce the burden on digital technology performer developers uh, so that they don't have to worry about that? They can worry about their algorithm and we can put in place this assurance. Um, is very hard. It's that that alone is sort of ARPA ARPA challenge, hard ARPA worthy. Uh, but that is a big risk: is that there'll be faulty patient care, and there could be a real risk to patient health and safety. The other risk that we're really thinking about is is sort of correlated to that as a lack of willingness to accept this type of advanced technology to folks that are questioning whether or not it actually addresses a problem that they're trying to solve. And I think that's one of the, the risks that we run is that if we put out faulty capabilities that are uh, generating misleading information, a provider's reluctance to uh, appropriate reluctance to integrate that particular digital health technology or any others for some period of time will actually potentially be detrimental to the patient population that could have benefited from a tool that was actually appropriately structured and if we're really designed with the right insurances in, in place. And so we're also very concerned that there'll be a hesitancy to use some of these improved capabilities that could actually improve patient care, but because there is the potential risk or there is a perceived risk, uh, providers would be less uh, inclined to be able to incorporate that. That's Susan Menares, Deputy Director of the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Health, speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Still ahead on Federal News Network, a big breakthrough for beyond line-of-sight communications in the U.S. military. That's next on The Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu, filling in for Tom. Back on the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu, filling in for Tom. A significant achievement for DOD's Space Development Agency. Last month, SDA demonstrated it could use a communication system called Link 16 between ground stations and its new network of low-Earth orbiting satellites. It's the first time the ubiquitous military communication protocol has ever been used in space. For more on why that matters and what it means, we're joined now by Jennifer Elsey, the Director for Strategic Engagement at SDA. And Jennifer, thanks very much for joining us. And, and I think uh, to set this up for to help folks understand why this is such a big deal, it'd be useful to understand a little bit what Link 16 is for people who have not worked in military communications. Can you set us up that way and, and tell us you know, what this communications protocol is used for and why you guys decided to prioritize it as part of your transport architecture? You bet. Thanks, Jared. So Link 16 is a specific military communication channel over radio specifically that allows tactical messages to be delivered to warfighters around the world. And um, the importance of it right now is that from space, we can expand its deliverable location out to the edge of where a warfighter might be. Previously, Link 16, which has been around for several decades, was limited to 
an area where it had to be about two or 300 nautical miles from another Link 16 radio. And now with the potential use from space, we've expanded that footprint significantly where a warfighter can be almost anywhere in the world and have Link 16 military data messages delivered to them wherever they are. Right, because I think the main limitation was also limited to line of sight, right? But if you're in space, line of sight is potentially everywhere. That's exactly right. We historically have fought wars primarily using within line of sight. And now with the opportunity to deliver data to a warfighter from space through the proliferated warfighter space architecture, which is what my agency is building, we do have beyond line of sight capability for Link 16 tactical messages. And that's one of the areas that the PWSA, our architecture, can deliver. But in the future, we will test and demonstrate other channels through which we can also deliver data. But Link 16 is a very significant one because of its military history. Right. And, and can, what can you share with us about what this particular set of tests actually demonstrated and, and whatever the test scenario, if, whatever you can share on that would be, would be helpful? This test took place a couple of days before Thanksgiving, which was very exciting. Uh, We tested three different occasions with three different satellites in low Earth orbit. So the satellites are about a thousand kilometers from the Earth as part of our tranche zero, which is our demonstration generation of the PWSA. And the satellites that we used for testing have Link 16 radios aboard. And they were connecting to Link 16 radios in an international partners territory on the ground. Uh, Our international partners have been very helpful and forward leaning about this Link 16 testing. And so we had to go through an uh, U.S. government waiver process and also an international approval process to be allowed to do this testing uh, in the territory of a foreign partner. And the Link 16 radios from space were able to both actively and passively connect to Link 16 radios on the ground and pass messages each way. And that active and passive is important because active connection means that there is sort of a digital handshake. Passive connection means that it can also connect even without that digital handshake. If it has the appropriate authorities for the network, it's able to connect uh, without as much uh, process as as a satellite might move overhead. What's the connection that, or how does SDA think about the connection of this new capability to the broader Joint All Domain Command and Control effort? Or I guess now, since you're working with the international partners, combined Joint All Domain Command and Control. Yes, it's it's a real possibility. So so Joint All Domain Command and Control, or JADC two, is the uh, is the pop term for it, uh, is really about connecting any sensor in the world or in space potentially to any shooter anywhere in the world. There's a lot of quote unquote magic that's involved with making something like that happen. And this Link 16 test is a real demonstration that that magic, if you will, is possible. So um, allowing military messages to be passed from space to ground does enable the idea, at least, of any sensor anywhere in the world being able to pick up whatever data it is that we need and move it potentially through space to wherever the warfighter who needs to use or apply that data, wherever they're located, and then send it down to the ground via Link 16, or like I said in the future, potentially other channels. Um, That's a very real 
step toward enabling JADC2 um, versus a lot of discussion and a lot of efforts that have been underway. But this is a demonstration that shows us one of the pieces that's going to make JADC2 possible. And one thing we, we haven't really emphasized yet is I, it seems like another important part of this is this is a, a generation of satellite communication that doesn't require the end user to have a big satellite terminal, right? I mean, we're, we're talking really about something in a form factor of a handheld radio, right, that is completely mobile. Is that about right? Yeah, that's an excellent point and a really important part of this discussion. From the outset, the Space Development Agency was committed to building toward what already existed. We did not want to force the military services to re-equip based on what it was that we were going to fly in space. Certainly, military communication channels will move forward over time. There may be other receivers or other channels in the future, but we didn't want to be the forcing function for that at SDA. So we built to what existed, and there are, you're right, very relatively small and transportable radios that can receive Link 16 messages, as small as something that someone can hold in their hand or can be mounted to a vehicle, which again, with that beyond line of sight capability is very important because if you are at the edge, the tactical edge in, a, in some sort of war fighting scenario, you don't wanna have to be bringing uh, new or different equipment that warfighters might not be trained on and you don't want a huge footprint to have to drag with you. Makes sense. So what can you share with us about what needs to happen still before this is in real operational use and what's next in the test plan? Yeah, so this is a very early demo. This is, like I mentioned, the PWSA's Tranche Zero, which is a demonstration generation. So the satellites that are on orbit today that perform these tests are not operational satellites. They're really for demonstration. But SDA employs a spiral development model, which means that every two years we field a new generation of capabilities in space, as well as the accompanying ground support, whatever's needed. Uh, So beginning at the end of 2024, so really just about a year from now, we will begin launching our first operational generation, and that will be outfitted with Link 16 radios, as well as optical links, which is using a whole separate frequency, uh, the light spectrum to move data within space and potentially to the ground, um, in addition to this Link 16 capability. So beginning in 2024, we will start flying our first operational generation. And then in 2025, we really will achieve probably initial warfighting capability, uh, which is what we call our ability to support the warfighter in an active fight if necessary, uh, sometime around the end of 2025. Yeah, And I just want to give folks a sense of how quickly SDA is moving in comparison to most military acquisition projects. I think that tranche one that you mentioned, you said it's going to be flying in 2024. I think the contract awards were just a couple months ago for that. Am I remembering that timeline right? The contract awards typically, so the ones for these radios that demonstrated Link 16 just a week ago, those contracts were let in 2020. Uh, the contracts for Tranche 1 were let in about 2022 timeframe. And then we right now are buying yet another generation called Tranche 2 that will begin flying in 2026. So we are moving, you're right, at, at the speed of light, if you will. Uh, and our agency as a whole stood up in 2019. So we've gone in under five years, we've gone from nothing, you know, paper to uh, demonstration on orbit. We're moving toward operational capabilities on orbit and then yet another uh, build out and replenishment generation for tranche two in 2026. So uh, the agency is moving very, very quickly to deliver these capabilities to our warfighters. Jennifer Elzey is the director for strategic engagement at the Space Development Agency. You can find more information and this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash federal drive. 
Still ahead on Federal News Network, how one agency coordinates everything the U.S. and its allies know about threats on the high seas. That's next on The Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu, filling in for Tom. Back on The Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu, filling in for Tom. At the National Maritime Intelligence Integration Office, or NIMEO, the mission is to coordinate and integrate information from numerous federal agencies, numerous countries, all in the pursuit of watching out for threats and bad behavior on the water. But when your area of responsibility is the entirety of the Earth's oceans, that all takes prioritization. For more about how that all works, we talked with Todd Boone. He's the Senior Strategy Advisor for NIMEO. This is an excerpt from a conversation we had as part of our Federal Insights series on maritime domain awareness. The volume and velocity of data these days um, is tremendous, and we need to use tools in order to help us do that. So it's very important um, in doing that to make sure that we clearly differentiate good and bad behavior in that massive volume of data. And the different agencies, they have many different tools and techniques to go over the decades of knowledge and data that they have to sit through in order to identify these critical insights. So, for example, both the U.S. Coast Guard Intelligence Coordination Center and ONI, they look at patterns of behavior and help differentiate between what looks normal and what looks abnormal. An example of that is Sea Vision. Now, Sea Vision is a web-based maritime situational awareness tool that enables users to view and share a whole broad array of maritime information, primarily for this tool on vessels of interest. Now, ONI applies its discrete analytic experience in the maritime domain to that data science and the algorithms in order to detect this anomalous activity and to identify significant patterns that have intelligence value. Again, that means parsing through a vast variety of data. So the Naval Intelligence Enterprise as a whole is deploying cloud-native tools and modernizing its databases in order to increase the speed of data processing. They use Python-based algorithms for analysis, and as with C-Vision, these interactive visualization tools that help characterize the environment. These tools help everyone in the maritime community understand how competitors, uh, rogue nations like Iran and North Korea, the non-government malign actors like terrorists and whatnot all behave on the water. And they also help characterize how changes in climate and human-made disasters like oil spills also affect maritime safety and security. But a significant amount of this discovery, it's still occurs based on human factors. So ONI and Coast Guard ICC analysts all possess a deep understanding of the maritime industry and therefore can distinguish between normal and abnormal processes. So for example, uh, we've had seen success in uh, support to counter narcotics where criminal organizations seek to take advantage of the maritime industry for the movement of their illicit goods and materials. But by analyzing their patterns and detecting anomalies in what normally happens in the maritime industry and identifying the abnormal behavior of these actors 
analysts can then enable a whole range of actions to disrupt or deny the illicit activity either by queuing U.S. assets or by sharing that information with our partners and allies. So yes, the broader maritime community applies expert knowledge to the use of several tools, analytic techniques, and newer algorithms that find the exact bad actor and passes that information to the decision makers for action. And that requirement to distinguish between normal and abnormal behavior strikes me that that's something machines are increasingly getting better at, especially AI. It's a great application for something like AI. Is that coming into play at all in this space, or is it still the case that you really need human expertise on this problem set? Right. The answer is both. So first, let me state that the DOD has been publishing policies and guidance on the ethical use of AI. And all of our stakeholders talk about their cautious approach to developing and deploying this technology. What I would offer is that the maritime community is working hard to adopt some of these newest best practices and technology. And AI refers to a whole spectrum of different tools and techniques, and those technologies are always changing. So let's take ONI as an example again. ONI began applying data science and tools and techniques back in 2018. And the Naval Intelligence AI strategy, it focuses on improving three things, right? So it focuses on reducing analytical timelines. Secondly, it, it focuses on improving relevancy and the accuracy of analysis. And finally, it helps to generate new previously unseen insights from the data that a human could never find in 10 years of sifting through the data. So using cloud-based data services, the maritime community is also working to make more data available to more international partners to improve their direct understanding of the maritime environment and also to encourage greater sharing from those partners back to the United States as well. So Going back to the ethical use of AI, it is important to note right, that all of naval intelligence data science applications have either human in-the-loop oversight or human over-the-loop oversight. So in-the-loop means that analysts receive the output from the model and then make their own evidence-based decisions. So for example, in SeaVision's illegal phishing model detects illegal phishing the analyst decides whether or not the model is correct. Now, over the loop is machine-to-machine interaction where analysts oversee the process. And again, taking C-Vision as an example, that tool has a model that takes multiple automated information system dots and decides which ones are connected to form a ship track and which ones belong to a different ship track. Now, that automation is based on subject matter expert collaboration on developing the model beforehand. Now, that automation in this case is not so much the computer making the decision, but rather the subject matter expert setting the decision criteria. As this technology and the expert knowledge of the mission changes, they have to go back and interact periodically to keep those models current. So 
the future of naval intelligence is not just about physical capabilities of the fleet. It is about the power of our data, right? The key to unlocking the next era of our maritime strategy lies in the algorithms and the analytics that get developed with this new technology. It's obvious, right, that data science and machine learning will shape the future of maritime analysis. All of our partners are currently working to adopt modern data science and cloud native tools as part of the wider DOD IC investment in cloud services that we've been talking about. ONI is planning to leverage machine learning in video transcript generation. They're looking to use it to summarize native language into English. They want to deploy chatbots, apply computer vision to search large amounts of images and video, um, and even generating predictive models of adversaries' intentions. That goes back to identifying patterns and the anomalies and putting that information back into a model that can help identify that through the vast array of data. So when new technologies are incorporated, that is based on mission need and how a new technology will help the maritime community enhance maritime domain awareness and better inform policy and operations. So on a broader Navy level, the Navy's uncrewed family of systems and the new replicator program, they will be leveraging machine learning as well as an affordable alternative to the way that the Navy has built and sustained you know, the fleet in the previous century. So Jared, remember, MDA is anything associated with the maritime domain that could pact the safety economy or the environment. It's foundational language, and there's many tools and techniques that we're uh, bringing on board to identify critical insights. Todd Boone is Senior Strategy Advisor for the National Maritime Intelligence Integration Office. He talked with us as part of our Federal Insights Series on Maritime Domain Awareness. To hear the full conversation and the rest of the series, go to federalnewsnetwork.com and search Insights. Still ahead on Federal News Network, federal agencies and academics have a new way to test unmanned sea systems. That's next on the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu, filling in for Tom. Back on the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu, filling in for Tom. The MITRE Corporation is celebrating the opening of what it says will help numerous federal agencies do a better job of studying national security, climate, and environmental issues. The new Blue Tech Lab in Bedford, Massachusetts, opened its doors to federal agency sponsors last month. It includes a 620,000-gallon tank for testing unmanned surface and undersea systems. It's the biggest in the region. For more on what the federally funded R&D Corporation hopes to do with it, we're joined now by Nick Rotker, MITRE's chief strategist for Blue Tech. Nick, thanks for joining us. And, and I think the place I'd like you to start is give us a little background on sort of the, the impetus, the demand signal that, that led MITRE to believe that a, a facility like this was was needed in the first place. Absolutely, Jared. So over the past decade or so, we've been building out our capabilities internally. And the demand we are seeing from our sponsors right now is is pretty unprecedented. We have uh, folks uh, reaching out to us across all of our different federal sponsors from Navy interests, uh, NOAA, the National Oceanographic Atmospheric Agency, uh, as well as U.S. Coast Guard 
and uh, other other uh, sponsors that are interested in the maritime environment. So tell us about the facility itself. What's it look like? Uh, give us some sense of the scale. What can you do there? Yes. Yeah, so uh, the the lab is one of MITRE's uh, largest investments that we've made over the past uh, decades. And it's one of the largest in the region. So it's 106 feet long by 40 feet wide by 20 feet deep. And it really uh, allows for folks to come in and collaborate. So we've built this facility uh, that has access to the outside community in a way that other MITRE labs don't typically uh, foster. And so this lab is open right now. We're, we're, we're looking for folks that are interested in utilizing this facility and partnering and collaborating with us to solve these problems in the maritime space. So it sounds like you don't have any projects lined up quite yet, but give us a sense of the types of work that you would be able to do there. Absolutely. So uh, given its size, we view, we view it as uh, uh, ripe for the utilization uh, of developing capabilities for autonomous platforms, right? So you want to be able to take your uh, autonomous platforms, test them fully before you put them in the ocean and, and inevitably things may go wrong and you may uh, lose that platform. So a lot of the interest that we've had to date is really around uh, underwater autonomous platforms, uh, underwater sensing systems, uh, capabilities where you're communicating between platforms in the marine environment and things of that nature. And, and why is it important to have a lab set up this way? I mean, what can you do there that you couldn't do in, let's say, a protected cove? Is it about instrumentation? What else, what, what, what are the big differences in, a, in that protected setting? Yeah. So in the controlled environment, you have a lot more ability to know what's going on with both your platform and uh, the environment, right? So it enables you to do much finer measurements. Uh, one of the capabilities of the lab is to do very precise uh, beam patterns and measurement patterns of underwater transducers and hydrophones. Uh, the other capability that's going to be unique to our facility is the underwater camera system that we have. So it is going to be one of the largest installations in the country of the Qualysis uh, underwater camera system, and that allows for 0.1 centimeter accuracy anywhere within the tank. And so you can take an object, put it in the tank, uh, and uh, enable uh, real uh, truth information of that platform. So if you're developing autonomy algorithms or other capabilities that need precise geolocation of your object undersea, this tank will allow you to measure all those so that you work out all the kinks before you put it in the ocean. And what what's kind of the, the range of agencies or MITRE sponsors who might be able to take advantage of something like this? So currently, we have a lot of demand coming from both NOAA uh, and our, our partners there uh, being able to test maritime platforms, uh, as well as a lot of our work from the U.S. Navy. So we do a lot of development of various uh, sensing platforms, communication platforms. And so being able to test it in our own facility, uh, we're seeing a lot of demand from our, our sponsors in that that place. What, what what are the other components of the lab? I mean, is the tank really the star or what else do you have installed there? So besides just the tank, obviously, it's a, a very large uh, controlled body of water. But uh, we also have lab space for those who come in and utilize the facility, uh, as well as the, the facility itself is actually the center of our, our Blue Nerve Network. 
the Blue Nerve Network uh, is a capability that we've been working on and developing and rolling out across the country, and it allows us to actually connect uh, geographically distributed labs and testing infrastructure across the country. And so our facility is going to be the, the hub of, of that network, and it's going to allow us to collaborate with various uh, maritime research institutions and government agencies across the nation. The news release that you guys put out announcing this talked about it, it being possibly used for climate research, which is super interesting to me. How do you study something on the scale of the climate in a facility that's uh, relatively small compared to the Earth? So one of the things that the Blue Nerve Network is trying to do is uh, connect all these institutions and reduce the barrier of entry for organizations to get access to maritime data. Right. One of the the main issues with trying to understand climate is that we don't have enough data or access to data around the oceans. And so one of the things that the network is is attempting to do is connect all these various research institutions, government agencies, industry partners together so that we can start sharing all of this data that we've already paid for, we've already collected, already exists, uh, and enable the community to access it in ways that they're not uh, able to at the moment. And is there like a particular government sponsor for the network or is MITRE just running this organically? So the original capability was developed uh, about a decade ago for our intelligence community sponsors. So it is a secure, unclassified network. Uh, it does require uh, U.S. only uh, personnel to to play on this network. Uh, however, the current instance of this Blue Nerve initiative, uh, we have a grant from the state of Massachusetts and the Mass Tech Collaborative to roll out nine nodes across the state of Massachusetts. Um, and so that's connecting folks like Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, uh, Tufts University, Northeastern, Massachusetts Maritime, uh, UMass Boston, UMass Dartmouth, and a couple others within the Massachusetts region. We also are uh, connecting with partners uh, across Rhode Island, down at the Naval Undersea Warfare Center in Newport, uh, as a government uh, collaborator, as well as the University of Rhode Island, and and are looking to expand to to other regions, including the West Coast uh, uh, and other partners across the country. That's Nick Rotker, the chief strategist for the MITRE Corporation's Blue Tech Project. We'll post more information and a link to this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook or LinkedIn. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. I'm Jared Serbu filling in. Tom Temin is back tomorrow. 